This podcast was recorded on February 21st, 2018. The views and opinions expressed herein are of the date recorded and should not be construed as an offer to buy or sell any securities. Such views and opinions may differ from those of DoubleLine Capital or its affiliates and are subject to change without notice. DoubleLine has no obligation to provide any updates or changes. Welcome to the Sherman Show. I'm here today with my co-host, Samuel Lau. Hey, hey. And today we have a special guest, uh, Jim Bianco from Bianco Research. Hello, Jim. Hey, how are you guys? Great. Uh, Thanks for being the guinea pig of testing our new technology with the uh, podcast here. You're our first remote guest, and we're doing this via Skype. So thanks for visiting us from your Chicago office. Well, thanks for having me. And I guess it's going well because I'm still with you here after 30 seconds. So far, so good. So we hope it'll continue on. You know, we're doing a little bit of research on your background, and we were noticing that you're about to celebrate your 20th anniversary of Bianco Research this year. Can you tell us about the path that led you there, maybe starting with educational background, interests, and and how you got to have your own research firm? Oh, wow. Or at least work in one that has your name. Yes. In the beginning, there was light, right? No, now moving forward. When I was in, I grew up in Chicago. And I've been in Chicago, you know, other than for a couple of years when I lived in New York. I got an interest in the financial market because the futures markets were located in Chicago. And I first had a summer job as a runner. For those who are old enough to remember in the futures markets, those were the guys that wore the gold jackets and carried the little order slip from the telephone to the traders. That job doesn't exist anymore. And I got into a little bit of technical analysis to very, very rudimentary when I was in the, in college. I started trading my own account in college and had mostly failure, but sometimes success with it. I say mostly failure because eventually I lost all my money. I actually went into a deficit and I had to get my parents to bail me out. Sign of so, so you had your first bailout in college even, right? So right. You, were, you were destined for government almost, really. Exactly, exactly. And you know, the great thing about the bailout was my account was $2,500 in the red. I went home to tell my parents that, you know, it started to rain and the bean market fell and I was long and I lost (laughs) all my money and I needed $2,500 or Vinny with no thumbs was going to come looking for me. And in typical parent response, my mother says, oh, thank God, I thought you got your girlfriend pregnant or something like that. This is no big deal. And my (laughs) father absolutely freaked out. You own 60,000 bushels of wheat or beans and wheat, there was some wheat in there too. What the hell were you thinking? What is wrong with you? You know, that was kind of the response that went from both of them both ways. So Wait, now, Jim, that, Jim, did they ever, did they ever ask you why you were betting on magic beans? Didn't you read about Jack and the Beanstalk? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So they knew what soybeans were because I was working for an uncle who was uh, down on the floor back then when I got my first original runner's job, but they had no idea that that meant that I was going to do what I wound up subsequently doing. And I was brilliant for a while there because I bought beans and it stopped raining and they went up and I was making a lot of money. Or maybe more specifically, I had a lot of unrealized gains that were never, ever realized. And then it started to rain. And then I learned very hard what a down limit day was. What do you mean I can't trade out of this? Did it hit the limit? I want to sell. 
Okay, but you can come back tomorrow. But tomorrow was down limit too, and you wouldn't let me out then either. Right, it's you know? always rough so when it, a, when you go from down limit to open down limit the next day, right? Right, that's exactly what it did. It was the it was the uh, summer of 1983 when that happened as well too. So that was my first foray into the financial markets. So then after college, I bounced around in a couple of jobs in the financial markets, and I wound up in at first Boston in 1987. You know, my first real, I graduated from college in 1984 from Marquette University in Milwaukee. And in the summer of 1987, I was in New York City and I got a job with First Boston long before it was ever called Credit Suisse. And I accepted my job. The fun story I like to tell that was I accepted my job on Friday, October 16th, 1987. And the following (laughs) Monday was the stock market crash. Good timing. yeah, exactly. It's like so rain in your beans head. right there. It's just uh, portfolio right. insurance unwinding, or so people right. attribute it. So I called them up after the crash, and, and initially, I, I got a job working as the assistant for the technical analyst. His name was Joe Generalis. And when I called him up and said, do I still have a job? He said, right now, I don't know if I have a job. But as the week unfolded, First Boston didn't go out of business. They honored the commitment to the job, although a week later, they put on a hiring freeze. So I was like the last one in. And I started on November 2nd. And my favorite story about that was they all gave me the nickname of LIFO, last in, first out. <laughs> and so that was my that was my nickname there. And then the director of research found out during one of the research meetings and he said, so why do they call you LIFO? And I said, last in, first out, you know, because of the hiring freeze. And he turns to everybody in the research department and he says, you know, technically that might be true that he's last in, first out, but bear in mind, I pay him less than anybody else in this firm. So if I had to save money, he's the last guy I'm going to get rid of. And that kind of ended <laughs> it right there. <laughs> well, at least you didn't have to ask your parents for a bailout because you didn't get your own account yet. You know, the worst case would have been you got a trading yeah. account, you get too long the market, and all of a sudden, you're going to be probably more in the red than 2500 bucks. Right, right. You know, that was a great educational experience. I was there for about two years, learning a lot about the markets. and the other. The other great story about the first Boston experience that I like to tell is about six or eight months before that, I had filled out an application to go into their sales and trading program. And I got back, remember this 1986, 87, I got back a postcard basically saying thank you, but no thank you, there's no spots for you. You know, I used to, you know, mutter to myself, yeah, that's because I didn't graduate from an Ivy League school or something like that. So you fast forward, I got the job, and in the spring of 88, I'm working for Joe Generalis, the technical analyst, and he's getting himself all worked up. He goes, oh, God, I hate this. I hate this. I go, what do you hate? He goes, I have to go give a little presentation on technical analysis to the sales and trading group. You go do it, is what he said. You, you go do it. So I went, and I gave the presentation about this is what we do with technical analysis, and this is our reports and how it works, and I got voted one of the better presenters or instructors during the whole training program. And I used to joke, wow, wow, is America great? You could go from being rejected to the program to an instructor within six months. It's <laughs> basically what happened. It's kind of like Top Gun flight um, school, right? Yeah, exactly. So then from there, Joe moved on to UBS and I followed him to UBS. Along the way, one of our clients was a firm called Arbor Research and Trading, or then it was called Arbor Trading Group in Barrington, Illinois. And I had struck up a good friendship with them. And then in the fall of 1990, they hired me and I returned back to Chicago. And from 1990 to 1998, I worked as the director of research at Arbor. And as you pointed out, April of 1998, I started Bianco Research, 
as an affiliated company of what does then Arbor Research and Trading. They changed their name a little bit. The reason we started, I started my own company is it made a little more sense because Arbor is a traditional fixed income brokerage firm, or at least traditional by the 1990s title. I'm not sure what traditional means in 2018 anymore. Therefore, it allowed me to be more expansive in, in the research. So I employ all of the analysts, if you will, and Arbor is my marketing agent. And we've had a very good, nearly, as you mentioned, in about a month, 20 years with this relationship going. And I had a previous eight years with them before that. So I've been affiliated with them now for 20 years. Awesome. That's a great story, too. I think I first ran into you in the mid-2000s of listening to some of your research. And we've been subscribers for a long time, hence the relationship here. We do admire the work and the, and the effort you guys put in. I just want to say that for folks out there looking for independent research, you know, Jim, Jim is one of the better ones out there. So on that point too, yeah, but Thank on you. that point, you don't have really the traditional economist training like a lot of people who go in the field. Maybe you could tell me what, what kind of branch of economics you feel like you subscribe to and, we'll, and try to try to describe that to our listeners. What do you see as kind of the pitfalls of some of the other schools of thought? Or do you just have the Bianco school of thought, which we want to promote today? I'd be curious to hear about that. You're right. I was not trained as a traditional economist. <clears throat> I have a I have an undergraduate degree, a Bachelor of Science in Finance. I have an MBA from Fordham University. But I've always had more of a as you know, as I cut my teeth as a technical analyst, and I've always had this interest in looking at relationships and more of a quantitative approach in the markets. And that's what we've tried to do is a more of a quantitative approach that there's messages within markets. Sometimes it's not as straightforward as punch out, you know, SPX and see what the S&P is doing. And there's the message. And we look at derivative markets and we look at indicators, how they interact with markets as well, too. And we try to come up with unique perspectives. I like to say, as an as a small independent research firm, we always read what the big firms do. And they always do kind of the same things. I'm not trying to disparage them. They do the same things, but they all have their own little niches in the way they do it. And I say, okay, as a, a simple example, there's 50 guys on Wall Street that can give you a guess on the payroll report. And they, the world doesn't need a 51st inaccurate guess on the payroll report. There's 35 guys down Wall Street that will give you a year-end target for the S&P. We don't need a 36th inaccurate year-end target for the S&P. So we try to say that's what we won't do because everybody else does it. And we try to fill in the niches and create new things, new indicators, new arguments along the way. And that's been our forte you know, pretty much since the founding of the firm. Yeah, well, I mean, maybe that's why I appreciate it too. I mean, you know, not many of us around here are traditional economists either. We use a lot of quantitative stuff or tools, I should say. We respect technical analysis. We like fundamental analysis. Again, I, I think there's a place for economists in there, but they have one of the most difficult jobs out there trying to forecast. So speaking of that, Jim, what are your forecasts for the year end on the S&P 500 and inflation? I'm kidding. Uh, yeah. <laughs> oh, well, you know, Rocky three, Rocky three, clubber led. <laughs> right? Yeah. So let's let's talk a little bit about the underpinnings of the global economy. I've heard from you, too, that, you know, that people are talking about this narrative of you know, coordinated global growth. Of, there's an uptick in inflation. You know, we have the chance for breakout inflation this year. What says you from a technical perspective and, and kind of looking at the charts? How do you think that sets up and plays out? Not just, let's say, in 2018, but the next few years. 
Well, most of the work that we've done is far as, let me take the inflation part of it first. We'll break the inflation part into two broad categories. There's the measures of inflation, and then there's the market expectations of inflation. It's measured by inflation-protected securities sure. and a number of those other things. As far as the, me the measures of inflation go, there's two arguments we've made with it. One, there's some signs that inflation might be returning the actual measures of inflation. Over the last nine years, we've seen some signs that it might be returning many times, and it yet has materialized. If you look at the measures of inflation expectations, whether it's the inflation swaps market, tips break evens, some of the surveys like the regional Fed surveys that measure wages and prices paid, we have got the highest expectation that inflation is going to return in the post-crisis era. So the markets are all wound up that it's coming back. The actual data is a little bit suspect, or not suspect, that's the wrong word. It's, it's not clear from the actual data that it's returning. Yes, we've had a couple of hotter than normal inflation reports recently, but that's not the first time we've had a couple of hotter than normal inflation reports. Markets make their own reality, and their reality is the combination of strong global coordinated growth. And yes, you could see that in a lot of the data that there is strong growth, there is strong earnings. There was a tax cut. There has been fiscal stimulus either proposed or is going to be more proposed as well, too. On top of those inflation numbers that may be coming back, has got the market believing here comes inflation for the first time. You have to go back to before the financial right. crisis. Can I cut you right there? Can I cut you off real Why? quick? Because I think you make yeah. an interesting point that it's a change in sentiment. And the question we've been asking ourselves and, and really trying to really distill down is that, is it really inflation or is it just a transitionary period from what I'll call a disinflationary mindset to, you know, talking about low levels of inflation to more of a moderate level of inflation or, or perhaps just achieving kind of Fed targets or those expectations. Reflation. And so, what's that? Reflation. Yeah, reflation, as people call it. I always think of reflation as a nice way of saying inflation's coming, you know, too. Um, but uh, is that is that kind of how you're thinking about it or what you're, what you're laying out here? Or are you thinking of not the hyperinflationary days, but pre-crisis levels where we actually got four and five handles print on CPIs? That's a good argument or a good point you bring up because – the argument you would hear about, all right, inflation's coming back. And I, I like to jokingly say, people will say, it's coming back, but you know what? We're not Zimbabwe, so why are you worried? Who cares if it goes from 1.6 on core PCE to 2 or 2.1? I mean, come on, you know, the old joke that uh, there's an old joke. How do you know an economist has a sense of humor? He uses a decimal point. Uh, you know, so why are we getting ourselves so worked up about a couple of tenths here or there on inflation? And my argument has been, you're right in a vacuum, a couple of tenths here or there on inflation doesn't matter, and it doesn't matter. But what we've had for the last nine years, globally, all the central banks together collectively have been expanding and expanding and expanding their balance sheets. They started, all of them together, the ECB, the BOJ, the Fed, the Bank of England, Swiss National Bank with less than $4 trillion on their balance sheets together in 2007. Today, it's at 16 and a half, and the all-time high was this week. In other words, they've never stopped expanding as a group. Yes, the Fed has raised rates. Yes, the Fed has announced a, a reduction in their balance sheet, but that is more than being offset by the ECB and by the BOJ. 
So for the last nine years, there's been this question that we've been asking ourselves, what happens when central banks leave? And in typical Wall Street or Wall Street reaction, you ask a bearish question, everybody looks at their watch and says, okay, I've given it now a couple of years, it hasn't blown up, so therefore it doesn't matter. And so we've, we've decided it doesn't matter because we got tired of asking the question. But now we've got the first instance that the market is worried about inflation. And the first thing that happens is derivatives markets go out of, out of kilter, markets get very volatile. We're speaking here on the 21st of February. The Dow Jones Industrial Average three hours ago was up 300 points. It closed down 166. So we had another 450-point interday swing in the afternoon here as well, too. And this is what I think is the first salvo in markets that are finally starting to say, now we have to start thinking about the reversal of central banks. All the talk for the last nine years had been just talk. We weren't reversing anything. Now we're starting to really think that that might happen, and we're seeing how the markets are reacting to it. And the more inflation we get or the more that we cement those expectations, the more we're going to see. Yeah, and on that note, too, I I do think it's interesting that you bring up the idea that people just say, oh, it's going to work out. Okay, we we started the unwind of the Fed's balance sheet. Granted, it's on a net, it's still positive supply, as you mentioned, from the other banks around the world. People are are acting like unwinding or letting 10 billion dollars a month roll off of a four and a half or roughly 4.4 trillion dollar balance sheet matters but you're talking about decimal points that's the second decimal point and it's only you know one one hundredth of that right. decimal point level and so when does it get real you know when we talk about the feds unwinding you know they've laid out the path that you know we're currently doing 20 billion of unwind a month or up to it goes to 30 in april 40 in july and 50 in october when does that actually matter or does it already matter? And that's what we're seeing. I, I know there's a lot of factors going on in the market. We do have, as you said, the fiscal deficits. And we have these increase in the budgets for this year. But when does the Fed's balance sheet have an impact on the overall market of what, what is that magnitude or that dollar amount per month that you think starts to really, let's say, kind of rattle investors or really start to cause concern about actually clearing these bonds at a true market price? Well, I, I'll, I'll give you two two thoughts on that. First of all, the Fed itself, the Kansas City Fed, did a study last year, and they in it's as good a study as anyone I've seen. So they said that about six hundred and fifty billion to six hundred seven hundred billion somewhere in there reduction in the balance sheet over a two year period is the equivalent of about a twenty five basis point hike. So, you know, you could just leave the balance sheet where it was and hike rates 25 basis points. Nobody knows for sure, but I'll go with those numbers as well. Meaning that if we're going at 10 billion a month to be 20 billion a month, eventually to be 50 billion a month, it is going to take two years to get one 25 basis point hike. And that gets to my second point. When we first started talking about this, Bernanke, who's Ben Bernanke, former Fed chairman, who's blogging at the Brookings Institute, one of his original blogs about reducing the balance sheet said he kind of started the word gradual, which they all used all the time, and suggested that they could take 10 years to get the balance sheet to two to two and a half trillion, which is what their ultimate goal is. He wrote that in 2016, so that is 2026. Okay, the only problem with them saying that, don't worry, we'll take 10 years to get back to normal, is there's no inflation to force your hand. And that's where I think that the markets are getting bothered. Maybe they bought into this idea that, It's all going to be fine for eight more years. But now we've got inflation, and maybe they're now starting to think eight years is now three years. 
and they're going to have to start moving a lot faster. And more inflation is maybe going to make it 18 months. And so I think that that's what we're starting to see right now with the markets is they were very complacent with the big balance sheets. They were very complacent with they have to get back to neutral, but they'll take a decade to do it. But now that we've got inflation, they're starting to think everything's getting sped up. It's going to have to go a lot faster than they think. And that stimulus that central banks have been giving us has mattered, has helped markets. It's keeping interest rates negative in Europe, even still to today. And when it goes away, you're going to see much higher rates across the board, and you're going to see that pressure. Yeah, one of the things, too, like I mean, it seems like the the Fed is really starting to gather some momentum here on their quite quantitative tightening or unwinding, whatever you want to call it. Do you think that momentum stays or is this something where the Fed is going to be more data dependent like they were with the earlier rate hikes? Or do you think they're just going to continue down the path that they've been on with the hikes, you know, maybe three, maybe four this year, and then the the uh, 10, 20, 30, up to 50 billion per month on on the balance sheet reduction? Oh, I think that for the time being, they're going to stay on their target right now. That, you know, we're going to get three hikes. We're going to continue that 10, 20, 30 billion. There's no reason to think that the Fed is going to change that. But I think that the real swing factor is going to be the ECB. The ECB was expanding their balance sheet at 60 billion a month. In September, they announced it was, I'm sorry, in December, they announced it went to 30 billion a month. And in September of next year, they're going to, you know, get back to us on what the next number is going to be. Let me throw in one other thought about the ECB before I give you a conclusion. Mario Draghi has to leave next year by rule. His, he's termed out and he leaves. The tradition at the ECB would be that the next ECB chairman will probably be a German, which is a, a nice way of saying a very hard money hawk is what we could have next. If this inflation is coming back, I don't know if it, the markets are as worried that it's going to change Fed policy as that it's going to change ECB policy and maybe even BOJ policy. That one's still a little open because Kuroda is an Uber dove who runs the uh, Bank of Japan right now. So that's where I think the markets are worried is that, that it comes back from there. Bernanke himself brought up this idea about what's called the portfolio balance channel. And what that means, in, it's a theory that Milton Friedman first proposed in the 1950s. And what it means in English is if the Federal Reserve buys something, doesn't matter what they buy. If they just announced it, all they were going to do is buy on-the-run five-year-olds and just drive their drive their yields unnaturally low versus all the other securities around them, that market arbitrage would take over and people would start selling the five-year, buying everything else, and they would eventually even out the yield curve and there wouldn't be this permanent kink in the yield curve. So the point he's trying to bring up is as long as stimulus is being done, it doesn't matter where or how it's being done, it will filter throughout the whole system. Write that one step larger. As long as any central bank is doing stimulus, whether it's the BCB or the BOJ or the Fed, as long as it's getting done, it's beneficial to risk markets. And that's what we have. So if we get inflation and this inflation then turns back the ECB, I think that's a bigger deal than whether or not the Fed, you know, hikes four times versus three or gets to 50 billion versus, you know, stopping at 40 billion. Or something that makes a lot of sense, too. I mean, I, I think of things a lot of times in net supply, right? And so, you know, even if you're putting some more bonds and someone into the market, but you have like a Corota or you have a Draghi that are out there buying, kind of offsets some of that behavior. So I think at least the Fed, if, if, if the goal is to really truly unwind the balance sheet to create perhaps more firepower for the next crisis, 
or next recession, however that may may materialize, that really they're in the lead in the race, right? We're in the Olympics right now. We should talk about racing. I guess there's not a lot of races in the Winter Olympics as much, but essentially they're in the lead right. here. And at one point, the ECB was in the lead. When you think about it, think about the ECB was actually unwinding its balance sheet back in 2012, right? And then they obviously had problems that, you know, the economy couldn't really, right. the economy started looking like it was going to stumble a step back in, you know, kind of begs the question too, is the U.S. poised for the the stumble as well as we start to really start to unwind in a significant manner? Yeah, you're right about the last thing you said, or the ECB did start to unwind. The Fed actually ended in 2011. It's uh, uh, quantitative easing as well, too. And then the economy stumbled, and then all of them got back in in a hurry. This, the difference now in 2018 is it isn't that the economy is stumbling. It's that the inflation expectations are taking hold right now and taking hold in, in, a, in a major way. And that is what is going to buy, you know, force the Fed's action on the market. Look at the way the markets are trading right now. Again, it's February 21st. We hit a, a high of 295. That's the high of the year. Yeah. And as I said, the Dow sold off 400 points. Up until three weeks ago, if, if I would have just told you just generically, hey, here's some random day that the Dow's going to go down 450 points and the reason doesn't matter, what's the 10-year going to do? It's going to fall in you. It's, there's going to be a risk-off rally is what you would expect. Not today and not in the last three weeks. Right. Because now what's driving everything is this fear of inflation. So rates go up, and I think the stock market freaked under that. Oh, man, here we go, 295 on rates. Maybe it was the Fed minutes that came out that was the catalyst for rates to go up. But nevertheless, they saw rates go up. The fear is that there's inflation. Inflation means central banks pull back. Risk no, I agree, and it's something we observed on our trading desk and really trying to analyze, you know, and it really started happening after the latest jobs report, you know, people focused on the average hourly earnings, and that seems to be the main talking soundbite these days. But that, you know, that really set a new high at the time, you know, in the low 280s on the 10-year. You had the market, this was the first day of the decline, the market was a Friday, it's consistent with the Friday jobs report. Monday, we had this down, Dow Day, you talked about bonds actually rallied that day. The entire curve rallied between 9 and 11 basis points from 2s out to 30s. So you had that traditional risk off. Next day, you know, and that was the down down over a 1,000 day on the Dow. Next day, market opens down again, and bond yields are up. <laughs> and throughout the week, as we go through that, the bond yields were up for the week. And so this has been a consistent trend in the bond market that it does want to go higher and the equity market's kind of vacillating back and forth, whether it's good, it's bad. Is it growth? Is it inflation? But there is something definitely changing. And when you decompose into real growth versus inflation expectations, it does seem like what you've been laying out takes hold. So with that kind of segue, we see you on CNBC a lot talking to Rick Santelli and stuff, wanting to take your opinion of the bond market. What do you think about rates right now? What do you think the bond market's telling us? We talked about break-evens, inflation expectations. But what is the bond market signaling to you, both from a technical sense and also just from a fundamental perspective? Let me take it from a technical sense first. 305. Intraday, yep. The taper tantrum peak in yields on the 10-year was 305. So now that's starting to get into that. So that's getting into the conversation now because we're only 10 basis points away. I think that that's going to be the next stopping point or the next level of resistance for the bond market at 305. If I had to give you a guess, 
my guess would be right now that will hold at least for the next couple of months. Why? Because when I look at the sentiment numbers in the bond market, the commitment of traders, which is a breakdown of open interest, who owns the futures market and, and other measures like the JP Morgan surveys and stuff. The bottom line is everybody hates the bond market. There's really nobody that's Doc, Dr. Lacey Hutt, right? Van Hoisington and pretty much nobody else right now that really likes. And, and also, but I mean, yeah, he's got he, good pieces. He, he when you read it, you, you do so think you want to like, go grab the guns right? and, and, and so, the butter, right? Right, right. He is, in, he is in Texas, so he's in the perfect place to do that, too. And so, but beyond him, no one else is, is bullish on the bond market. And I think the sentiment's overdone. So my guess would be, from a technical point, we, we hold 305 or thereabouts. You know, if we get 306 or 308, I'm not going to get that, that picky about it. And, you know, we could maybe see 280 again or something like that. Before the end of the year, we'll probably see higher yields because of this inflation scare. But right now, the first phase might be close to being being done on it. Fundamentally, I do think that the, the bond market suffers from, from two things fundamentally. One is it's been overvalued by most fundamental measures for a decade. It basically since the beginning of quantitative easing. So that, you know, is hard argument to make at this point because as I said, I've argued to people that, you know, is the bond market overvalued? Yes. And also while it was overvalued in the earlier parts, you know, between 2011 and 2016, because of low yields and positive convexity, you had some of the best total returns ever afforded in 200 years during an overvalued market. So I don't know how much that helps you to, to, to say that right now. So it is overvalued, but what, uh, you know, as we talked about earlier, what I think is the change is the inflation components are the change right now in the bond market. And those are going to continue to push yields higher. The beginning of the year, before all this fun stuff started, I, I said, I thought the most important story of the year was going to be inflation. And I said there was two outcomes to it. Outcome one was we were going to get inflation and we were going to push up the back end of the curve. That's what we got. Outcome two is the inflation story goes away and we're going to then wind up pancaking the yield curve and be talking about, you know, a flat to inverted curve. And that means a signal of a recession. Well, that story is not playing out. But the basic broader thing I'm arguing is inflation is the story of 2018. And, you know, and it could have even been the story if we didn't get it. But the story is we are getting it. And now how much do people behave, change their behavior? How much is it is going to be impacted in the markets? How yeah, much and you bring those two points up, and you know, I, I want really to say, well, maybe we actually well, get both too. this year. You know, I came into 2018 thinking that we would get some steepening as you had this kind of reflation or, or, or thoughts about inflation again. But perhaps with, if that does steepen the curve and you start to get higher yields out there on the back end or at least deeper in the belly to the back end, that that actually causes fears in other markets, which leads back to, you know, kind of the flattening and, and the lack of inflation again. So maybe it ultimately becomes a tale of two markets as rates do price higher. I definitely see that. I mean, you know, if if the technical calls right, we hold 305, and we see some kind of 25 basis point rally, you know. Just where the two-year note is now, and it's so anchored to Fed policy, you could definitely see the two-year tenure re-challenge 49 basis points or 48 basis points, which has been its low of the cycle that was set back in December and January. So you could definitely see the curve flattened from that right. perspective. And then you're back to 50 with yields at 280. You know, So you've got you know, a flatter curve at a much higher level. 
as well, too. So you could definitely see both of those. And at the end of the day, if this is being driven by inflation, there will eventually be an acceptance that this is not the good and wonderful thing that everybody hopes it will be. Like I said earlier, if it's just do we go up four or five tenths on the inflation numbers, who cares? You're right. But when you have $16 trillion worth of central bank balance sheets that now have to rethink right. that policy because we want to- Jim, I, I wanted to bring a couple of the pieces that we've been talking to, talking about uh, together. You know, we've talked about how perhaps equities and bonds might be affected with regard to inflation and even, you know, talking about how ex- inflation expectations might actually be changing. You've done a little bit of work I've seen recently about the correlation between stocks and bonds and especially around the- the shifting of mindsets from a deflationary to an inflationary mindset and vice versa. You know, is there something that you could you know, elaborate on a little bit more for our listeners on, on how you view that changing a relationship, perhaps? Yeah. If you talk about how this, the relationship between stocks and bonds interact with each other or yields, I'll, I'll use yields instead of bond prices because most people are more comfortable with that. You think it would be something that you could write in an investment textbook to teach to a bunch of undergrads because it's an absolute that when rates do X, the stock market does Y. But the reality is it's not an absolute. There are certain regimes that we, we, we've kind of phased in and out of. And I think that those regimes revolve around inflation. So let me start with the period from about the mid 1960s to about 2000. During that period, you had a, and I'll use yields again, you had a big negative correlation between yields and stock prices. When, during the 60s to the 2000 period, the dominant theme was inflation. When we were afraid that inflation was coming, yields went up and stock prices went down. When we were relieved that there was no inflation, the 80s and 90s, yields went down and stock prices went up. Then around 1998 to 2000, the mindset changed. We're no longer worried about inflation anymore. We're worried about deflation. And in a deflationary environment, stocks and yields are highly correlated to each other. So when we worry that there is in deflation, yields fall. Stocks don't like deflation. They fall. When we're relieved that there's not going to be deflation, yields rise and stocks rise. That's been the case in the 1950s, and that's been the case since about 2000. And that is the case that everybody thinks is still going today because this morning there was a roundtable discussion on Bloomberg TV and there was all these people talking about the yield could go to 350 and it would be still positive for the stock market was kind of their takeaway, meaning that higher yields means, in my parlance, no deflation, all good things, more growth, more earnings. So it's a wonderful thing that yields go up, not inflation. But if we are transitioning to that inflation mindset, and that's what's got my antenna up over the last three weeks because stock and bond prices are falling or, you know, yields are moving in sort of the opposite direction of stocks for the first time since the financial crisis, we might be having a regime change. Now, who's that going to most affect? In the post-crisis era, the big thing that everybody among RIAs, registered investment advisors in those, is this the, the 60-40 portfolio. 60% stocks, 40% bonds. That's worked great. Why? Because at some point, something's always rallying. Either stocks are going up or bond prices are going up. So the 60-40 portfolio has been a good idea. But if we're transitioning to an inflationary mindset, 
Now it becomes the 100 zero portfolio, right? Stocks and bonds are going down, everything goes down, or stocks and bonds are going up because we're overdone, we, the inflation fear is going away. And it, the 60-40 portfolio is not the natural hedge that everybody thinks of it. A fancier way of saying that is the risk parity trade is going to be called into question as well too. During all of these periods when we have this mindset change from inflation to deflation, there's a lot of stress in the markets. In 98, we had long-term capital. We had the Russian debt moratorium. We had the Asian financial crisis. We ended it with a tech bubble. The first thing that happened here when we saw stocks and bonds fall together was we saw the derivatives markets freak out. We shot the VIX up to 50, and the next thing we know, the Dow was down 1,600 points intraday. So we saw that kind of stress. Why? Because that was in nobody's mind that they could both fall together at the same time. Why? Because they they looked at the last nine years and they couldn't find an example of it falling. So they assumed that that would continue. And this is where I think it's the single hardest thing about anything in finance is when you get these regime changes. Because if you don't recognize it, it can be very painful. If you think there's one, yeah, that's that's awesome. I, I always like to describe like macro thinking and trying to use that as a tool is that the goal is to identify the trend. Mm -hmm. When the trends are underway, you want to ride it, but you've got to be looking for that inflection point. And when to kind of pivot the portfolio or change it a little bit or try to change that mindset. So it's not shocking why we like your research so much is I think there's a lot of thinking that's along the similar lines. But that said, I'd love to have another hour or so of this conversation. We try to keep these to like 45 minutes or so. And Sam's getting a little fidgety over here looking at his Sherman Says question. So although we could continue this on, I really want to transition to Sam's part of the show. And let's uh, let's try to do the psychological test on the two of us today after we've had some of this volatility in markets for the last couple of weeks. So, Sam, why don't you kick it off? All right. Sounds good. Uh, before we jump into that, I have one final quick question. And this okay. comes from one of our, our listeners that we have at, at the Sherman Show. Do my it mom call in again? Someone internally. Oh, okay. Someone okay. internal. Okay. So. Do we pay? Are they on our team? We pay them? They are on okay. our team. Okay. We okay. do pay them. Okay. But, okay. you know, as we said, you know, we appreciate the work you do. As, you know, most people that know me, they'll say this is saying a lot. When I, what you put out, your news clips are one of my daily reads. I don't like to read that much. So I'm, I read sparingly, but I do yeah, read Sam's so. a picture guy and he does a lot of rebuses, <laughs> right? So he likes to uh, communicate with photos and, and uh, pictures. So Yeah. And then some of the other thing is, you know, the webcast, your weekly webcast on Thursdays. It's one of the, the things that we notice is that you, actually have a camera on yourself. That's that's very rare and somewhat unusual. So the question stems around that. It's like, what kind of feedback you've had on it and why why the camera? Um, that's a good question. Um, I, I thought that we did the camera largely because we had the capability of doing it. And, you know, so all good things start with um, the ingenuity of it. But uh, I thought it helped because we have a lot of clients in a lot of places to help, you know, personalize the... Uh, uh, the, 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 the conference call, the personalize what we're talking about as well too. There's always an option you could turn it off if you wanted to. Uh, the most interesting Mine's thing always on. was, Mine's always on. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, the, the, what was, what, what was interesting was, um, in the last conference call we did last week, I had Ben Breitholz who works with me on the conference call with me and we did a little bit of a discussion. And one of the comments that came through was, Jim, you look like you want to hit him. And the answer was, I did, you know, and stuff. <laughs> and so there, there, there's a lot of that that goes on too. You know, the visual really does, I think, make it more engaging because, you know, let's be honest. When you start talking about things like inflation mindsets and you mentioned the word convexity and stuff, 
you know, people could really just start drooling on themselves as they fall asleep. And anything you could do to kind of keep it more interesting, I'm all in favor of. And if the camera accomplishes that, then all for it. I'm going to remind you that we're the bond guys and we didn't use inflation nor convexity here. It was you that did that. So uh, and that's without <laughs> without the visual uh, accompaniment. So. Yeah, you're right. like he's going to punch me if I said something like that. So, <laughs> All right, so Sherman says, here we go. Uh, the rules okay. are, I, I say a term, phrase, something to elicit a response from you. Hopefully the response from you is uh, one word or so. You can feel okay. free to go over, though. I'm just going to put that out there. And I'm going to alternate uh, between you and Jeff Sherman. And I'm going to start off Sherman first with corporate spreads. Widening. Uh, 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 white, widening. Okay. No, we only get, we each get I, I mean, one. We don't get to both answer it. So yes. Sam has his okay, own special okay. way of doing this. He doesn't want us to both have I got you. Part. I got you. I was going to say this yeah, yeah. word came to my mind. All right. Yeah. yeah so, so widening. <laughs> so that, that could have went to either of us. Uh, but right. now we'll start over and we'll start with you. Yeah, so the next one's for you, okay. Jim. Munis. And it doesn't have to be Illinois or Chicago. Let's just talk about Munis. <laughs> um, uh, struggle. Pension funds, Jeff Sherman. No LDI at three. Jim, uh, dead cat bounce or BTFD? Uh, dead cat bounce. Petrodollar. Crypto failure. Petro yuan or petro Chinese currency. <laughs> RMB. RMB. Oh, is that for me? Yeah. Petro Chinese currency? Yeah, so uh, you know, along the lines of that, they're launching their own futures uh, for the crude oil market coming out. And yes, um, fail. Fail. All right. Uh, best Twitter follow, Sherman. The truth. Truth Gunlock. Jim, this is for you. Best Twitter follow. Oh, uh, Goldman Sachs Elevator. <laughs> Does that guy still tweet? If you're from- Does he still tweet? Uh it, but there's their classics. Yeah, no, the ones are classics, but then he went to trying to sell you uh, socks delivered like every couple of weeks or yeah. something. And I, I kind of lost Well, my letters. second choice would be the Darwin Awards. Uh, uh, we we, we kind of ban that around here because it, it is a rabbit hole <laughs> once you start looking. Yeah. yeah, exactly. All right, back to Sherman. Wage growth. To be seen. Jim, three or four in 2018? Four. Sherman, barber or stylist? Stylist, man. Haven't you seen that long flow? All right. And Jim, for the final one, White Sox or Cubbies? Uh, Cubbies. All right. Well, that that wraps up the show today. Thanks again to our first uh, Skype guest here, uh, Jim Bianco from Bianco Research. It was a pleasure chatting with you today, Jim. Thank you for having me. Thanks again. And for those of you listening, if you're still on, uh, remember you can subscribe to us on iTunes, SoundCloud, uh, Google Play. And uh, we'll appreciate feedback. If you want to send it, we have an email address called Sherman Show, all one word, S-H-E-R-M-A-N-S-H-O-W at DoubleLine.com. Again, Sherman Show at DoubleLine.com. Uh, we appreciate feedback, criticism, applause. Um, and if you have any recommendations that people like to hear from, like Jim Bianco, please let us know. Again, thanks again, Jim, for joining us today. Thank all right, you. Take care. Bye-bye. The audio presentation represents Double Line's intellectual property. 
No portion of this presentation may be published, reproduced, transmitted, or rebroadcast in any media in any form without the expressed written permission of DoubleLine. DoubleLine has no obligation to provide any updates or changes. To receive permission from DoubleLine, please contact media at DoubleLine.com. Neither DoubleLine nor any of its affiliates makes any representation or warranty as to the accuracy or completeness of the statements or any information contained in this podcast and any liability therefore, including and respective direct, indirect, or consequential loss or damage is expressly disclaimed. DoubleLine is not providing any financial, economic, legal, accounting, or tax advice in this podcast. The receipt of this podcast by any listener is not to be taken as constituting the giving of investment advice by any DoubleLine entity or individual to that listener, nor to constitute such person a client of any DoubleLine entity. The portfolio risk management process includes an effort to monitor and manage risk, but does not imply low risk. Copyright 2018, DoubleLine Capital.